Welcome to the ITSB Magazine Podcast Network. You are about to listen to the Cybercognition Podcast, a show about artificial intelligence and how it is transforming the world around us. With your biological, sentient, and mostly rational human host, Hutch. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the seventh episode of the Cybercognition Podcast. As always, I am your host, Hutch. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about transhumanism. So transhumanism is the perspective that the, the technology is going to play an increasingly relevant and integral role in the ascension of humanity. And of course, uh, I think that we're seeing a lot more of that as relevant within our contemporary conversations. Uh, much of our identity is already digital. Uh, we're seeing it increasingly in the biotech world, especially in the medical space with different implants that provide life-saving technologies from implanted defibrillators, insulin pumps, uh, biomonitors. Uh, we're also uh, increasingly having the conversation that with more and more powerful artificial intelligence, there's the concern that in order to even remain relevant in a future of artificial superintelligence, it likely is going to become increasingly more important to integrate technology into our own capabilities. Uh, so all of these trends tie back to transhumanism, making it an increasingly relevant topic day over day. And uh, there's, of course, some out there that are uh, leading the way in terms of transhumanism. Uh, so I have with us today uh, someone that I consider a good friend, also a pioneer in the transhumanism space, uh, highly accomplished global speaker and cybersecurity professional, and all around great human being, but also uh, something a little bit more than human. So uh, Lynn, I'll hand it to you. We got Lynn No. I'll hand it over to you. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Yeah. Well, first of all, Hutch, thanks for having me on, man. It's great to see you again. Absolutely. Um, a little bit about me. Um, you kind of summed up a lot of it. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm more than human, but at the same time, I think before I go into what, what I am, I think that the fact that I'm still a human is one thing that I do want to, you know, put a, a hard focus on for just a second. So a little bit about me. Uh, I am a former black hat, retired uh, one percenter uh, motorcycle club member who has decided to go from a black hat life to where now I am working in the, the realms of cybersecurity and taking all of those things that I learned while I was doing things that we're not going to get into because statute of limitations hasn't run out on all of them yet. Um, but while I was doing those things, I, I picked up a very unique set of skills and it, it's helped me kind of keep my, my finger on the pulse of where the cyber threats are going. And, and to your point, uh, I am probably one of the more well recognized transhumans in the world. So uh, transhumanism, I, I liked your definition, but the very simple way to sum it up is the ability to enhance the human condition through the technological ex exposure. So this term was actually coined by a gentleman by the name of Julian Huxley back in the 1950s. 
And this is what the whole movement was based around. Uh, I currently have 10 different microchip implants that are between my elbows and my fingertips in both of my arms. I have everything from biosensing magnets that allow me to actually feel electromagnetic fields and currents. I have near field communication. I have so many different variations of RFID for physical access that I think that the last time I counted, it was something close to about 185, 187 different physical formats. Things like, you know, Prox, Pyramid, Diamond, Indala. You know, for anybody that's listening, if you've ever looked at like the badge that you hold up to your reader on the back of it, it might say like PROX or HID. These are the formats. So I can essentially skim cards, write them to implants. I've got a whole bunch of new tricks that I'm sure we'll get into before the end of our discussion. But uh, in terms of what you said around AI, I see that as a very big part of what we're seeing in the transhuman space from the medical perspective. We're seeing a lot more machine learning being put into smart prosthetics. Uh, and you really didn't even bring up much around the concepts of brain-computer interfaces like Synchron, uh, Neuralink, and even BlackRock Neuroscience. So with the fact that we're seeing machine learning in general and what it's capable of, the idea that we're going to start seeing this stuff being more and more integrated in, especially from the medical field, I think is inevitable. Agreed. Um, yeah. And I, I think it's, you mentioned the, the brain computer interface space. One of the things that I found fascinating, if you look back to 2016, just before Elon Musk founded Neuralink, he did a presentation at a code conference. And he, he basically said that, at the rate at which artificial intelligence is moving. And, and this was really good foresight because you think about this, this was back really before Transformers and before what we're seeing now uh, as really a manifestation of what he was saying. But he said that we are going to be, at the rate that it's accelerating, we will be left so far behind that we'll essentially be the equivalent of a house cat if we don't somehow figure out a way to leverage technology to remain relevant. Absolutely. I mean, <clears throat> let's think about it. We've moved to a, a, let's look at this from just more like a, 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 an infrastructure perspective for just a quick second. We've now integrated more and more AI machine learning into things around, uh, let's say, power plants, wastewater treatment plants. We're slowly removing the, the human element to be able to interface with these at all anymore. So at some point, the only way you're going to be able to interface with the machines, because the keyboards don't do it anymore, you know, the the verbal commands don't do it anymore. I mean, if we're moving to a 100% digital existence, then at some point, if you want to interact with that, you're going to have to literally be able to plug into that digital experience. Yep, absolutely. Um, and and I, I think that does beg an interesting question that I, I think is concerning for some people, and I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on it. But but there is this question of uh, if you think about kind of the, the long term vision of something like Neuralink, where uh, there's this perspective of we want to create a low late or low latency connection 
that allows us to interact with this kind of digital intelligence. And I, I think almost the perspective of just cognitive access, where I, I think of something and I have instant access to the knowledge relevant to that. Uh, I think the concept of it is fascinating, but also it's it's a little bit scary, I think, for a lot of people, this idea of almost this digital or artificial collective conscious that we would all be plugging into. And I, I guess there's the question of, and you, you emphasized early on in this, uh, you are very much human. And I, I think there's that question of, is there a possibility it's somewhere along this journey, we lose some, if not all of our humanity in that process? I think it would be very, very easy to do. You know, I, I look at this from two different perspectives and, and you can, I, I know that social media is, is part of our lives, but I'll use this as an example. You know, we have addictions to social media now. We have entire generations that are living in a false reality and all they have is an object that's in their hands in front of them. You know, if we get to a point where you don't have to even get up off the couch and you can completely immerse yourself into some type of fantasy world, you know, and, and let's take this just one step farther just for, you know, and I know we're going off the reservation just a, a couple of feet. At what point, you know, back to the actual Matrix movie, at what point does the things in our mind become real to us. You know, I mean, if you think about it, if you died in the matrix, you died in the real life because your brain made it real. Yeah. So if, if we're plugged into some neural conscience and it tells our brains that this is real, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a hacker at the, at, at my core and I always will be, you know, my thoughts to that is at what point, would there ever be enough security or, or safety around these types of mechanisms that I would ever allow myself to be plugged into it? Absolutely. I mean, you, you think about it like it, it could theoretically become possible not for me to manipulate computer systems, but to manipulate your own reality or at least your perception of that reality, which absolutely. subjectively is your reality. Yeah. And so. So, yeah, I, I think absolutely from a cybersecurity perspective. And, and I think one of the challenges that we're seeing more and more with cybersecurity is that things are moving so fast and mm -hmm. they're also becoming so complex. And you, you have that, that law of unintended consequences. The more complex something comes or becomes, the more likely that interacting with it or manipulating it is going to cause some kind of impact that you didn't intend to. And it's fascinating because we've we've made so many advancements over the last couple decades in cybersecurity and defense technology, and yet mm -hmm. it feels like we haven't moved anywhere. Because I think at that same rate, we're seeing the complexity increase and and introducing well, more problems as fast, if not faster, than than we can solve them. Well, I mean, <clears throat> excuse me, I was having this discussion with with another you know associate not too long ago, you know, and we were talking about just the we'll call them the guardrails around AI that everybody is, you know, relying on to keep this in check, you know, and I essentially made the analogy that what we're doing is the same thing that we're trying to do would be trying to contain the words coming out of an adolescent child. We're telling you don't do this. But the problem is, is the AI knows 
just like the child does. I know what I want to say. You're just telling me that I can't say it. And, you know, if we're looking at the long-term projection, like you were just saying, what happens as, as these, you know, learning models start to age and they go from being the child that w will listen because it has to until it becomes smart enough that it can find ways around the code that's holding it in within its restraints. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, uh, oh, I, 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 oh, I saw an interesting uh, video the other day on YouTube where, uh, and I don't remember who it was, but they were discussing how uh, we, we basically are kind of putting this Band-Aid over it to try to condition the, the response from these LLMs. And it was, he was pointing out specific instances in which the LLM would reply in a particular way that was deliberately deceptive because of that Band-Aid that we placed over it. And so the example that he gave was, I was trying to create some kind of fan fiction uh, related to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And in doing so, he asked it what it knows about that that universe. And I think because of that Band-Aid they had placed over it, because they didn't want to potentially infringe on the, the intellectual property rights related to that, uh, the machine actually responded with, or the large language model responded with, I don't know anything about that universe or that world. And then as the conversation progressed, certain leaks from the conversation made it apparent that it did know characters and it did know things about Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy through that conversation. And so it's concerning that in creating that Band-Aid, like you mentioned, and kind of trying to redirect that toddler in the way that it is going to respond, we're almost even incentivizing it to be deliberately deceptive too, which I think right now may not be as problematic as you you extrapolate that over a decade or so uh what we could potentially see yeah and and to me that's the scary part because these things you know it, it's right in the name of the technology machine learning it's learning you know and as we continue to move forward and you know going back to you know my previous statement about you know the smart prosthetics you know what happens when these things start becoming more advanced and what happens when they get hacked? You know, that's my thing is all of this stuff at the end of the day, AI, all of the stuff we're talking about, it's still just another computer and people act as though it, it is impenetrable. It can't be breached. It can't be manipulated. This is all at the end of the day, just code. And if it's code, it's vulnerable. Absolutely. And, and what I, I find fascinating is, and, and admittedly a little bit surprised to hear, but the, but, but I guess at the same time, you're in the same cybersecurity world that I, that I am. So, uh, you know, the potential risks, but, um, I, I, a little bit surprised to hear just given your trend of early adoption with transhumanism technology, you say, that you would be potentially reluctant to to adopt something that had cognitive impacts instead of just manipulating your way of physically interfacing with the world. I'm still, I'm still a rebel and I'm still can, you know, on the outside and, and I'm fringe and I like it that way. All of the technology that I currently have and all the technology that I have plans as far as putting into my body are all self-owned, self-controlled, not connected to anybody else unless I want to be 
You and are still firmly the decision maker. I am still at the end of the day. If I decide, I, for example, you know, you know about all of my microchips. I ha- I have Faraday gloves made, so people don't brick my chips. But at the end of the day, that's on me. You know, I don't want to. You know, case in point. You know, I don't want to be. You know, buying a product, well, I'm not going to use any brand names. We'll just say a certain type of cell phone or electric car that if I don't decide I want to buy the ultimate package, I only get X amount of percentage of the battery. Pay for the subscription oh. model. <laughs> exactly. You know, I if I'm going to do, I am at the end of the day, a 100% privacy advocate. I am a, a one staunch, you know, individual rights advocate. I think that if it's your body, if you want to be like me, you want to tattoo it up, great, do it. You want to put a microchip in your body, go for it. I don't think anybody should be forced to do anything that they don't want to that goes against their beliefs or against their wishes. Absolutely agree. Um, so I, I do want to rewind here for a minute. I, I, and obviously, we'll circle back at the end to kind of the the larger ramifications of transhumanism. Uh, but I and, and obviously, I know a lot about kind of your your specific capabilities, so to speak. But I, I think for the listeners, um, would you be able to go through kind of how you got into uh, augmentation? Kind of what was your first step into that? And then uh, also talk me through kind of some of the different implants that you have and some of the hacks that you've custom hacks that you've created out of that. Yeah, sure, no problem. Um, I'm. If anybody who has never seen me, you can go Google me. You'll find a picture. Uh, I tell people I have one tattoo and it starts at my neck and just ends on the top of my feet. It was easier than actually counting them. Uh, From tattoos, I got into doing body piercings and flesh hook suspensions. So I'm one of those guys that likes to have hooks put in his back and hung from the ceilings. So I've been aware of the the grinder community. Grinder is another slang term for the original transhumans or you know body modders. But that, I, I was aware of that community for a long time. I've watched. I had watched them. I've been very interested. But the stuff they were doing was all basically garage. You know, the first peg leg, you know, which is a Raspberry Pi Zero W that's been stripped of all the extra headers. They put a, an indirect power receiver on it. So for like a wireless power reception, then they would cover it in two-part epoxy and then just surgically implant it in their leg. Now, how, how big is the that device? Uh, uh, Raspberry Pi Zero W is about the size of a stick of gum. Okay. It's not the big one like that. It's, it's this little single board stick. Uh, I'm at, that's actually one of my next implants that I'm getting. I'm just doing it the smart way. Um, but I was watching when they were doing the yeah, it's like, it's like with something long like that, it'd be easy to kind of bend the wrong way and just it's damage to it. That's why I go, typically it's put directly in the upper thigh behind the your front pants pocket. Okay. So that way you can take a, because there's no battery in the device. It's only meant to receive power. And you would slide a battery pack in your pocket that had the ability to do wireless charging. It would then power the device. Then you can access it from your cell phone. Oh, that's an interesting idea. So it does stay powered all the time. 
or as long as you have battery in there. But, you know, and originally it was meant to act as a logless files drop so that if I wanted to send you pirated files and there'd never be any log of anything, uh, it's a non-persistent OS. Every time it loads up, it just basically boots up into like a FTP drop. We both connect to it, transfer, transfer, gone. So th unfortunately, it's nowhere near as cool as like the Johnny Mnemonic thing from, you know, when Keanu actually, you know, plugged the wire in his head and downloaded stuff to the hard drive in his brain. It's not that cool, but it's still pretty darn cool. I'm actually working with the CEO and chief uh, designer for DangerousThings.com, and we're actually working on putting together a peg leg for me, but we're actually bioencapsulating it the correct way. I, I don't want to die. But it seems like as, you know, as far as how I got into it, like I said, I was watching, you know, the forums, the groups, you know, if you've ever seen it, go check out a firefly implant. This was the one that made me think these guys are just out of their minds. They were actually implanting radiated material that would actually glow through the skin. Yeah, that, that seems like it could have some problems. Yeah, yeah. That, I, I, that just doesn't seem like a good long-term, you know, health positive kind of thing to do. So essentially, once I found out that there were consumer-grade implants that you could purchase, you know, over the counter, then I, I was basically off to the races. So I originally started off with, with, with a chip that is called a Next, which is both an RFID NFC combination chip, and it was a bioglass. So it's about a little bit bigger than a, a piece of long grain rice. From there, I got a VivoKey, which is a cryptobionic chip that at the time I could use for doing authentications against web apps and things. And then so, I just kind of lost my mind. And I have to ask this question. So it, you've, uh, you're largely the guy that's kind of brought hacking to biohacking. I mean, you've, you've kind of found that intersection between uh, augmentation and cybersecurity. And so w was that always the plan in these early, when you were starting yeah. to adopt was figure yeah. out ways that you could, Demonstrate yes. malicious capabilities. Absolutely, that was the the plan from day one. You know, I mean, if if we're going to talk just from a high level, when when we're talking about security, you know, and especially from an offensive perspective, the biggest challenge, in my opinion, is not the attack. I mean, because the truth is, you've been around long enough. You know, like me, you try hard enough. I'm gonna get in. Now, the trick is making sure that it's quiet and I'm not caught. And if I am caught, leaving so much chaos that it doesn't lead back to me directly. So between HIPAA laws in the United States and the health and privacy laws essentially around the world, these have given me as the potential quote unquote bad guy, they've given me obfuscation by law because all of these chips that I have in my body, they can't ask me. The other thing when we think about being a cyber criminal is intent. So it's all about the intent. Well, if you can't find a, a stolen ID card on me, if you don't find a flipper on me, if you don't find a prox mark on me, you have no way to prove that my intention was to break in. 
So at this point, all I have to do is just play stupid and say, well, you know, the door was open and I've seen all these racks of computers on, on all the Dell commercials on TV. I thought it was neat. I wanted to see. <laughs> you, you know, go. you search me, you're not going to find the tools that you would need to be able to make a prosecution or an arrest stick. So I the guess worst you're going to be able to do is hide it in your body, right? Exactly. Yep. And, you know, to my point earlier, you know, as we move more and more into this digital, you know, society and digital existence, you know, there was an, uh, an amazing game. And I know I'm, I'm completely carbon dating myself here. <laughs> but I mean, I remember back in, in when I was a kid, you had Dungeons and Dragons, but they had Shadowrun, you know, which was basically the same thing, role playing game. But it was all about the future where people were going to be connecting into the technology and, and attacking corporations. And I kind of wonder if that's not a preview of what's to come, especially, you know, if we do all have a majority of the society plugging into some type of AI in their brain, you know, wrangle, you know, but one of the things that, you know, I, I since you, you brought us here on this conversation, I wanted to ask you, because this is something that, you know, I, I've done a lot of research around being, you know, in my position as a transhuman. How do we make sure that this is not a, another way to try and class people? Because if you can't afford these types of advancements, how do they stay relevant and how do they stay current and how do they move into this new world? Well, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. I, I think that this is... a AI, one of the biggest macro challenges with AI is that it's just going to further exacerbate that rich and poor gap because you have now the owners of the means of production. Well, the means of production becomes increasingly automation and AI. They are going to benefit from all of the capabilities that exist out there. And those capabilities are going to be increasingly more done by machines and less by humans who can even somewhat profit from that work. So uh, I, I think we're, we're absolutely going to see significant disruption. I think to your point, there's also the question of as we do increasingly need to integrate technology to remain relevant ourselves, whether that's remain relevant in society or remain relevant in the workforce, there is this challenge of well, am I going to have an upper hand if I can afford the leading, bleeding edge AI integrated into my own cognition compared to somebody who can is taking the the socialist version that's handed out? And and, and unfortunately, yeah. that's that's a serious thing that I think we're going to have to contend with. Um, I, I will tell you, and, and I, I don't like to get too deep in the weeds on politics, uh, yeah. but traditionally I've, I've been very kind of small government uh, pro-capitalism type person. And I think that increasingly we're going to have to grapple with capitalism is increasingly going to become more problematic as we enter a world where it's no longer based on human labor. And so uh, I, I agree I with you a hundred percent. I don't know what the right answer is there, but I, I, I think you're right. This is, there are extreme macro challenges that we are facing that we've, we've never had to deal with before. And um, I, I will say there is some silver lining. We are starting to see uh, at least discussions at the highest levels of government related to AI and the impacts of that. 
unfortunately, I, I don't have a whole lot of faith that that will move fast enough to address some of these challenges. And, and as we know, I mean, regulation and uh, just government in general moves extremely slow. And day over day, this is getting faster and faster. And so one last question, because I, 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 I know we, you've got a couple, but I had one more on my list that I wanted to throw to you. So I've been doing, during a lot of my research, I've come up and seen where we're seeing projections now where at some point they expect to be able to intercept and and be able to interpret the neurons that are firing in our brain and essentially be able to map the brain. And there have been projections, there may be a point in the not too distant future that we'll actually be able to basically back up our, our, our brain and our essential consciousness or download it for another generation so that they can go through it. Yeah. What would your thoughts be to something along those lines? Like, keep in mind at this point, you can't say, I only want to, you know, give these thoughts and not these thoughts. But would somebody like yourself, who's very immersed in the AI, you know, culture and, and the AI concept, how do you feel about the ideas of potential human conscious data banks somewhere? And then what could potentially be gleaned from that? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting conversation because I think increasingly we're actually seeing some interesting overlap in the efforts around kind of readability and interpretability in AI and how that will also potentially pertain to the human brain. Uh, To your point, I mean, a lot of the interpretability uh, initiatives are kind of around understanding what neural or neurons in a neural network fire off given different stimuli or different events. And, and I think we're, we're kind of approaching the, the brain the same way. Now, I don't know if that's going to be the final answer, but I think you're right. At some point, we very well may get to that point where we can back up the human, whether that's human consciousness or whether that's just a point in time snapshot of thoughts, yeah. knowledge. Um, either way, I, I think there are, I guess, I guess circling back to your point about thinking about this from an adversarial or cybersecurity perspective, there that's some serious privacy concerns there. I think uh, I almost every episode of something like Black Mirror comes to mind when you think of something like that. So, I mean, you gotta watch that show. I've never seen a single episode. Yeah, Um, everybody keeps telling me I gotta watch it. No, it's it's hit and miss. I'll tell you some some episodes. Every episode's a different story, and so and all of them are some kind of dystopian future. Um, some are fantastic. Some are are not even worth watching. But unfortunately, you have to you have to watch them to figure out. You gotta figure them out. You gotta watch them to figure out which ones which. Yeah. Um. But I I think I I understand the desire to get there. I think for for many people, um the idea of ceasing to exist, uh, regardless of what your opinions are on on religion or an afterlife or anything like that. Um, I I think that even if you believe something, there's there's an inherent fear around the idea of death or no longer existing. And so I, I would imagine that, especially when you get to the idea of potentially backing up someone's full consciousness, not just kind of their memories or what they know, um, I think a lot of that is kind of a a play towards immortality. And mm-hmm. I, I understand the the inherent human or maybe not even human, but biological desire 
to continue to exist. I mean, that's that's essentially what uh, I mean. Evolution breeds into us a desire to survive. It, it reinforces all of the traits that make us want to continue to exist, the things that make us more likely to survive. And of course, a desire to live is one of those. So I, I think if I may, sure, if I may. So back to our initial question, at what point are we no longer human? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a tough line to draw. It's uh, I think it's it's a fascinating world we're living in. And, and I, I guess I I'd be curious your thoughts on this, but I know for myself, even as a technologist and working in this space on a near weekly basis now, if not daily basis, I take a step back and I'm just blown away by how fast things are moving. Oh yeah. And, and, and it's almost frightening. And um, I, I think that that is a, a pro that question of potential loss of humanity is going to come up or is going to, become an issue i think long before we're ready i think we're, we're gonna approach it before we realize that it's going to become a problem and, and one of the things actually that that i found interesting is if you i think increasingly we've started seeing this phrase of you're not going to be replaced by ai you'll be replaced by somebody using ai and in that i think there's almost this implicit imperative that you have to continue to adapt. You have to continue to adopt the latest technology into your own capabilities in order to stay relevant. And so I, I think there's almost a, a societal requirement, while not explicitly stated, uh, that we continue to do that. And unfortunately, I think that that precedent is already going to have been set once we finally get to that line of, are we losing our humanity? We're going to almost seamlessly move across that line because of that implicit need to stay relevant. And so it's, I, I don't, unfortunately, I feel like these days I have a lot more questions than I have good answers. So I, I, it's hard you to say. You got a chat model that you can go ask those questions to. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> All the answers lie within chat GPT. <laughs> well, you know, my running joke these days are, you know, even Dracula needed Renfield to take care of him during the day. So when when our, our AI overlords come to take over, you guys are all in trouble. See me, I'm going to be cleaning boot drives like Renfield somewhere. I'm already part part of their team. So <laughs> in the club. Um, well, you know what's what's interesting is that uh, you mentioned kind of talking to language models about these things, and what's sad is that. Uh, increasingly, because of the desire to make these commercial ready, they're they're removing any ability for these models mm -hmm. to talk about kind of the the bigger questions and the bigger like existential philosophical things that you, you almost want to have a sounding board to to conversate with. And, and uh, that's why most of these days will be like, whoa, whoa, I, I don't want to go into an existential. Yeah, but see, let's be honest. That's why there's things called hacking the prompt. Yep, there you go. You can still have them. Let's get around it. You know, and back to my point about, you know, the current, you know, controls are, are just putting, you know, just basically threats against a, an adolescent. Eventually, this model is going to learn how to get around pretty much anything we throw at it. And I think this is just more systemic of the nature of, of us as as humans to go, we're just going to control this. 
not realizing that you can't control it. So rather than trying to say, oh, you can't ask these questions, why aren't you logging the IPs of the people who are asking these questions and actually trying to get either some preventative controls in place, get some, you know, health and human services in place, you know, some authorities, you know, instead you're just basically forcing a shadow industry to market the true capabilities that AI offers. And if, and once people know it's there, they're going to continue to try and find it. All right. Uh, well, this has been a fascinating conversation. Um, always a pleasure uh, talking about these things. Um, I, I, I really enjoy both your, your technological and philosophical minds. So uh, a lot of fun. Um, wanted to leave it open. Do you have any parting thoughts or uh, or any pluggables? Anything that uh, where people can find? Uh, to be honest, I'm, I'm actually uh, I, I'm off the road for a little while, so I, I'm just working on some new research. Uh, uh, Looking forward to having a just a little bit of a quiet downtime. You know, I, it's it's been a, a a nonstop couple of years. You know, I'll, I'll close with this joke, and and it's it's a joke my wife told. You know, I'm I'm living the rock star's life these days. I, I think I've put on close to four hundred thousand miles of travel over the last couple of years. You know, and I, I turned to my wife one night and I said, you know, I'm living the rock star's life, but where's all, you know, the drugs and the girls just as a joke? And she was like, what are you talking about? You got everything you needed, everything you asked for. Like, what are you talking about? She's like, you have five daughters and now you have to take medication to deal with it. There you go. <laughs> so I appreciate the time, Hutch, as always. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, man. And uh, maybe we'll... we'll Maybe we'll have to get together sometime soon and uh, show you the new peg leg after I get it installed. Yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to it. Um, all right. Well, this has been great. Um, and uh, with that, uh, broadcasting from the last bastion of the human resistance, this is Cybercognition. Over and out. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Cybercognition Podcast with Hutch part of the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then add this show to your favorite podcast player. Subscribe to the ITSP Magazine YouTube channel and share the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to connect your brand to our conversations and our audience, visit ITSPMagazine.com to learn how to sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey.